Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the nation. Glad to have you with me. The phone number, should you wish to be a part of this program, 877-973-7425. Delighted to have you. I hope you guys had a great Easter. We did. (laughs) We went to sunrise service and then we came home, had breakfast, got the kids up. We left the kids sleep through sunrise service. Had breakfast, went back to Sunday school and church, came home. We all fell asleep, forgot to put the roast on. Uh, So we had sandwiches yesterday. That was our fine Easter meal. Although I did make Natchitoches meat pies for the front porch last night. Uh, Fried Natchitoches meat pies. They were fantastic. They really, I got to say, the guy who cooked them, they were fantastic. Uh, And out of a pile of them, there were six of them left, and I was able to send them home with the guys who were there. It was fantastic. I will send you the recipe on Wednesday. Text recipe to 33777. I'll get that one out. I, I've sent out a baked one. This one's a fried one. It is not healthy. It is delicious. Now, we got to talk. Uh, and and there's news, but you'll forgive me. I want to actually, I, I want to talk about this at a higher level because I think it's really important. I, I have been commissioned by World Magazine now to write two pieces Uh, I'm a columnist with World Magazine. Uh, Don't talk about a lot. Um, I want to direct people to Substack, but you need to know uh, the two pieces that I've done at World Magazine. One is on a New York Times story about the increasing divisions within the United States, largely because of abortion. And then the one that uh, is for today is about the ProPublica leak of tax records I spent a little bit of time on last week. Now, I want to put us in the Wayback Machine, and I want us to go very, very, very far back, like 2,000 years backwards, not not to Jesus, but to Rome. There's a method to my madness. I am a professional. Bear with me. Rome went through a lot of turmoil uh, over time in its imperial phase, uh, prior to Diocletian and then after Constantine, uh, there, there were problems, but really in the run-up to Diocletian becoming emperor, you had the crisis of the third century and you had emperors rise and fall. You had, I think, what, seven emperors in, in a year? I mean, one would grow, one would come emperor, then he'd get assassinated, the next one would get assassinated, the next one would die, the next one would get assassinated. It threw the entire empire into chaos. But that chaos was not generally felt by the population. The chaos was not felt by the population in large part because the instruments of Roman society continued to operate as they needed to be operated. If you've ever been to France or to Italy, you can see the Roman aqueduct system. They, y'all, they really are. If you've never been to Europe, and I realize a lot of people have never been to Europe, you should try to go one day. Uh, if you go to Nîmes and Pont de Garde uh, in France, you can see some of the best preserved aqueducts. What most people don't realize is that the Roman aqueducts, by and large, ran underground. They didn't even run in, in, in the great arches and stuff, the, the great spans. They, they didn't run that way. Rome uh, developed certain tools and and derived tools from the Greeks. The Greeks were the original inventors of the aqueduct. But every five miles, the Roman aqueduct would descend a foot. 
And so it was a, a constant sloping and reduction to their destination. And the Romans, with various survey tools that they and the Greeks had invented, were able to build these elaborate water delivery systems. Now, there were cisterns to collect rainwater for the poor and for drinking water and the like. But by and large, uh, these came in to supply the fountains and the wealthy with their their water and ultimately, over time, supplied water fountains from which people could get their drinking water throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, from France to Italy to Greece, you name it, there were aqueducts, and, and they were amazing instruments of architecture. Uh, to this day, we actually don't understand everything that went into their construction. During the Dark Ages, after the fall of the Roman Empire, a lot of our knowledge was lost, including the Roman development of hydraulic concrete. Hydraulic concrete is a concrete that continues to get stronger and stronger as it gets wet. It's a remarkable piece of engineering that scientists in the 21st century are only starting to really relearn how to make. Uh, yes, Roman concrete from 2,000 years ago actually holds up better than modern concrete used globally. The Romans did impressive, impressive things. And while they were in the crisis of the third century, an emperor fell and rose and fell and rose and fell and rose, the Roman Empire worked. The aqueducts continued to provide water. More importantly, the Roman bureaucracy worked. So while the emperors could fight each other and, and Praetorian guards could assassinate emperors, the tax collectors kept collecting the taxes. The mints kept producing the coinage. Law enforcement continued to keep the cities safe. The legions not on the front lines continued to, um, to patrol the roads of the Roman Empire to make sure the criminals and pirates were kept at bay. The port authorities continued to keep their ports open, so the flow of not just goods but harvested wheat continued to feed the empire. The empire did not go to starving and did not collapse because the Roman bureaucracy continued to function in the best interests of Rome as a whole. However factionalized it was, there was not team emperor this and team emperor that. There were not partisans within the bureaucracy, it just functioned. And so through all the crises, Rome operated. That gets me to a couple of stories that have happened in the last couple of weeks. One is the FBI story, uh, the trial of the men accused of kidnapping, trying to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, collapsed. The jury found three of the four not guilty and got hung up on the fourth. The salacious details of the FBI turned out not to be true. The Durham report has released a little more. You have not heard this in major news outlets. The Durham report, Mr. Durham investigating the origins of the Steele dossier, turns out concluded that it was not uh, practically possible that Donald Trump was an agent of the Russians. It was essentially invented by the shoppers of the Steele dossier, and too many people bought it because of their contempt for Donald Trump. But there was no way it could have been real. Members of the FBI, you will recall, fell for this and weaponized the FBI to go after the president of the United States. And then there's the IRS. In 2010, the IRS, under Lois Lerner, uh, the director of exempt organizations, uh, began to release uh, documents about Tea Party groups, but also obstruct the ability of conservative activist groups from getting nonprofit tax status. Progressive groups, some of them were exposed and, and blocked, but uh, frankly, many of the progressive groups were allowed to go forward and the Democratic groups were not. 
There was a congressional investigation. Lois Lerner was held in contempt of Congress, and even Democratic members of Congress called on her to either resign or be fired when it came out that she had been weaponizing the IRS against conservatives. Because even the Democrats, like Carl Carl Levin in the Senate, knew that if you begin to weaponize the IRS against political opponents, you begin to jeopardize the legitimacy of the institutions of the American bureaucracy that the United States actually needs to continue to operate in good times and bad. Now, fast forward to this, as I mentioned the other day, ProPublica, a left-wing nonprofit uh, investigative journalism outfit, Someone from the IRS leaked to ProPublica the information, the private tax information of the 400 wealthiest Americans. These are people who make on average about $110 million a year. A lot of wealthy Americans, like Warren Buffett, for example, don't make a lot of money every year. Believe it or not, Warren Buffett, um, I think he makes $24 million a year, which is a lot for you and me. But it's uh, small, it's a pittance compared to the 400 wealthiest Americans, the Bill Gateses of the world, the the Walton family uh, from Walmart make hundreds of millions of dollars a year in income and file 1040s. Some like Warren Buffett and others, they borrow against their wealth so they can offset their tax liability. With loans, it brings down the amount of money they pay in taxes. These are all perfectly legal tax schemes that have come out of our complicated tax code that Congress has blessed or the IRS has sanctioned. But of the 400 wealthiest Americans, it's not a coincidence that this ProPublica report comes, not just as tax filing season is here, today is the day to file your taxes or your extension, uh, but also as Democrats want to tax these wealthy Americans. It is not a coincidence, I don't believe, that this information about these 400 wealthiest Americans leaked as Democrats, including President Biden, are set to unveil a new tax proposal to tax the wealthy. And there are a lot of people out there who say, well, so they're wealthy. Why should I care? You should care because justice requires that you care. The operations of our government as a united government in which we can trust require justice. And justice requires that you care about people who are unlike you. When the George Floyd matter happened and George Floyd was laid on the ground with the the knee of the officer on his neck all those many minutes, there were some on the right, well, George Floyd's a terrible guy. He was on drugs. He was a criminal. And a lot of us, myself included, like regardless of George Floyd's past, no American, should have a knee on their neck that long, like that, in that situation. And justice required that though some of us have nothing in common with George Floyd, for our common humanity, we should be outraged by it. And there were some on the right who refused because of his record, because of his past behavior, because it's, it's, I got to stand with the police, regardless of what the individual officer did. The same way, the media and the left turned on Nick Sandman. Nick Sandman was the uh, young man in Washington at a pro-life rally who was vilified by the press, claiming that he was um, 
uh, assaulting, obstructing, or otherwise uh, abusing the rights of an uh, American Indian protester. It turns out it was the American Indian protester who caused everything. And by the way, that guy spoke out and said what had happened uh, after some cajoling. It turned out Nick Sandman was innocent of everything he was accused of. He wound up suing and getting a lot of money, and he was vilified by people on the left. But justice must not care who the person is or whose politics they're in. For our system to work, we must be blind to it. And so we are blind to it. We, are, we, are, we show ourselves blind and we get outraged by injustices to the poor, to people who are of different races. But increasingly with partisans, we have a hard time saying justice demands this because we don't like the guy, so we don't care what justice does. And the same holds true for this. There are a lot of people who say, well, it's the richest Americans. Who cares? Screw them. This is this is for the greater good, this exposition. The exposing them is for the greater good, says every tyrant ever. If you can't care about this, if you can't care that the IRS is weaponizing itself, that partisan progressives within the IRS are weaponizing the IRS, You're ultimately going to be made to care when the system of justice collapses, when the system of trust in government collapses, when the respect for the bureaucracy collapses, and it's already collapsing. We have a problem. The Romans could weather the storm of the crisis of the third century because everyone agreed the Roman bureaucracy could be trusted to function. Very few people these days agree the American bureaucracy can be trusted to function. And if that's the case, we have bigger problems than the Roman Empire had. So many people want to compare us to the Roman Empire. We're not even at the imperial stage yet. We're, we're rapidly headed towards that imperial stage, I suspect, as the precursor events within the Roman Republic, the graft, the greed, the corruption, the turning on each other are, are foreshadowing what's happening in the United States right now. Uh, something wicked this way comes within this country when we as a people decide our measure of what is just and unjust is based on whether we like the people, not what was done to them. And what is done now is our American bureaucracy is being weaponized against partisans, weaponized against people, weaponized against the unpopular in order to affect public policy. That's not the way the system's supposed to work. And if it keeps working that way, the whole house is going to collapse. Something's got to be done. And it's outrageous to me that no one in the media or in the political realm is willing to speak up and do anything because it just so happens that the victims are very wealthy. If you're not willing to say anything about the victims because they're very wealthy, at some point, people won't say anything about the victims who are very poor. And at that point, the whole thing comes crashing down around us. We got real problems and someone needs to do something in Washington. The phone number here is 877-973-7425, should you wish to be a part of this year program. You know, speaking of disclosures, you know who's come out? against uh, disclosures to the IRS because of its weaponization. Uh, Patrice Cullors, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, says the, the disclosures are being weaponized against her. I th- This is a problem uh, that I, I, I don't know that we're going to resolve this problem. Not to be a pessimist here, but as a pessimist, I am never disappointed, sometimes pleasantly surprised. Unless both sides are willing to cease and desist from the weaponization of disclosures, we got problems. Uh, In New York, uh, New York 
released to certain press outlets the names and addresses of gun owners that provided then the media an opportunity for harassment of those individuals by publishing their names, also setting them up as criminal targets by criminals trying to break into their house and steal their guns when they weren't home. In California, the left weaponized uh, financial disclosures for Proposition 8, the traditional marriage uh, ballot campaign out there several years ago. People, including Brandon Ike, the uh, CEO of Mozilla, lost his job because of it. We see the left in particular uh, weaponizing overwhelmingly, disproportionately, financial disclosures targeting individuals who give money to certain causes, trying to get them fired or otherwise harassed or make it radioactive to support causes. Uh, the bright, by the way, has done this too, although they have less clout because they control less of the media to be able to do it. The weaponization of information is bad. And now you've got progressives within the IRS leaking information. None of this ends well for any of us. I can see it coming, and everybody else can too, but they're enjoying too much vilifying their opponents. When you got the the co-founder of Black Lives Matter saying uh, this is a bad idea, you know, transparency is good for the system to avoid corruption, but when transparency is weaponized, it becomes very, very bad, and, and it's worth risking the corruption over the weaponization of transparency. Then you got the, the whole thing with Elon Musk. You, you know, the members of the media who should be outraged by a leak of private tax information from ProPublica are actually more outraged by Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter. This is bizarre. Listen to this audio here. And yeah, we've heard a lot this week about billionaire entrepreneur and uh, Tesla CEO Elon uh, uh, Musk, who has made a $43 billion offer for Twitter to, quote, build an arena for free speech. Musk has accused Twitter of censoring its users. Are you concerned that what Musk is trying to do is to open up the platform for more misinformation about topics such as COVID-19 and the 2020 election? I mean, we, we can stop it there. They're worried about uh, Twitter being used for misinformation, something the media has used Twitter for. But uh, they're worried about free speech. This is the most bizarre thing, that uh, members of the media are upset that if Elon Musk were to buy Twitter, that people would be able to get on Twitter and say things the media doesn't like in, in the name of, well, they could spread misinformation. That's what the media is for. Think of all the stories they continually retract about Donald Trump, including what was the latest one, the, the seven hours of missing phone records spread far and wide by the media before it had to be retracted. They don't want people to do that on Twitter unless it's them. When you disrespect free speech and justice and weaponize bureaucracies, bad things happen to nation states. Hello there. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be on the program? I, you know, I ask regularly just how is it the Democrats have gotten as bad as they have at playing the politics and the political games and the like? Let me give you some data here. This is from uh, Brian Minna. He's the economics reporter for the Wall Street Journal covering labor. According to the Labor Department, 13 states have recovered all of the jobs they lost when the pandemic first hit. In alphabetical order, Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, 
Indiana, Montana, North Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah. Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Montana, North Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah. Texas has gained the most jobs since February 2020, followed by Florida. Maine, Mississippi, and Wyoming are close to recovering all jobs lost. Four of the states saw their lowest unemployment rate ever in March, including Georgia. Arizona, fully Republican. Arkansas, fully Republican. Colorado, fully Democrat. Florida, fully Republican. Georgia, fully Republican. Idaho, fully Republican. Indiana, fully Republican. Montana, fully Republican. North Carolina, uh, Democrat governor, Republican uh, legislature. South Dakota, Republican. Tennessee, Republican. Texas, Republican. Utah, Republican. Republican, 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 Republican. Mississippi and Wyoming, Republican, Republican. They're they're coming. Maine um, is Democrat. Very few states run by Democrats have succeeded. Uh, Colorado is kind of the unique one. Colorado is is becoming increasingly a, a big both tourist center uh, with skiing and the like. You've got the marijuana industry there growing. Uh, you've got uh, United Airlines' big hub there. You've got a lot of industry in Colorado. It's, it's recovering. But where's California on the list? Where's New York? Where's Illinois? Where are the big states? Where's Pennsylvania? They're not there. The Democrats economically, their story is not as good as the story Republicans can tell. It's not just Southern states, although look at the list here, Arizona in uh, the Southwest, Arkansas in the Southwest, Florida or in the South, mid, Central South, Florida Southeast, Georgia Southeast, North Carolina Southeast, Tennessee Southeast, Texas South, Mississippi South. But it's not all them. It is, however, overwhelmingly Republicans. The Democrats have a lot of economic and fundamental problems they're having a hard time dealing with. And frankly, part of the problem is the Biden administration keeps making things worse. Remember, uh, for months now, the Biden administration has been telling us there was nothing they could do about gas prices. Nothing. There was nothing they could do. And then they released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It helped trickle down prices a little bit. Interestingly enough, I told y'all, had they done anything for show, it would have helped. And now they've done something else. They're going to resume oil and gas leasing. The Interior Department is going to put together uh, 144,000 acres for leasing for oil and gas. But... They're also going to raise the fees. Royalty rates are going to go from 12.5% to 18.75%. You got that? So they're going to increase the amount of land available for leasing, but they're going to raise the rates. So they will raise the cost to the oil and gas industry while opening more land. Progressives are furious that this is going to increase the climate change, but is anyone really going to take them up on the offer when you're raising the rates? Now, the reason they're raising the rate, they have a plausible case here. It's what most private landowners uh, and, and major oil and gas states do, but it's going to raise the costs. 
Had they left the rate the same and expanded the land, they would have gotten much quicker, greater pickup. They can't help themselves. They're trying to say they're doing something while also disincentivizing doing anything. At the same time, the Biden administration, according to the Associated Press, is taking a key step toward ensuring that federal dollars will support U.S. manufacturing, issuing requirements for how projects funded by the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package sourced their construction materials. New guidelines issued Monday requires that the material purchase, whether it's for a bridge, a highway, a water pipe, or broadband internet, be produced in the United States. However, the rules also set up a process to waive those requirements in case there's not enough domestic producers of the material or it costs too much. Um, so we're going to insource. Now, a lot of you will think this is a good idea. I disagree. Insourcing sounds great, but if the product to be purchased is twice as expensive and, and no better quality than the product you get abroad, why make American taxpayers do that? You are punishing the American taxpayers. You actually get less infrastructure built because of the higher prices. So they're causing higher prices while saying they're going to do something. Who does this isn't smart? It's genuinely not smart for the Biden administration to do that. It sounds good. It'll be politically popular in steel-producing states like Pennsylvania, a must-win state for the Democrats, and Wisconsin, a must-win state for the Democrats in 2022 for the Senate races. But it's bad politics. And then you've got, of course, Title 42. Here's Chuck Todd from Meet the Press on Sunday. The three things you need to tackle inflation right now, tax hikes, uh, higher interest rates to make it harder to buy a home, and more immigrant labor uh, to fill the jobs that we don't have here and all because rage, wages are rising too fast. But who wants to be the politician that advocates for those policies? Hey, we need a slow wage growth here. We need to open our borders a little bit more. It, it, it really is confounding, and I think you have an administration here that is a bit paralyzed on the immigration issue. What, what, what is necessary for the economy, they don't want to touch. Uh, with a 10-foot pole because of how toxic just anything at the border uh, has become. And look, some of this for Greg Abbott is, a, you know, is, is political theater, trying to keep up with Ron DeSantis as he wants to do his old 2024 business. But it's a potent issue, and it's potent enough that it's dividing the Democratic Party. It's not dividing the Republican Party. Exactly. Here's Beto O'Rourke running for governor of Texas, who's decided it's time to end Title 42. But I want to turn our uh, attention to, to Title 42. You don't think it's a good idea for the Biden administration to end Title 42. Why? No, I, I think it's time to end Title 42. Okay. I don't think we should have ever implemented it. It's a very cynical reading of U.S. law. I mean, they tried to help him out on that one. And he's like, nope, I think it's time to get rid of it. This is a problem. You have all these people coming across the border. Now, I want you to know the media, though, is doing some damage control. John Harwood, this is his analysis. This is analysis because it's from John Harwood, who, who's worked at various press outlets and now is an analyst for CNN. He gets to write this. There's not much more President Joe Biden can do about it. There's not much he can do to curb inflation. There's not much he can do to stop migrants from reaching America's southern border or to reduce crime or to make vaccine resistors get shots. 
that would hasten the end of the coronavirus pandemic? There's not much Joe Biden can do to compel cooperation from defectors. Within his thin Democratic congressional majorities, there's nothing at all he can do to compel it from Republican adversaries who would rather aggravate than alleviate his burdens. In other words, there's not much Biden can do about the heaviest weights depressing his political standing, which has remained stuck in the avalanche waning zone for months. So his party faces the likelihood of substantial November election defeat that hands the House and perhaps the Senate to the GOP. Biden and his aides will spend the next seven months trying just the same, using the White House bully pulpit, executive authority, and international diplomacy. Marginal benefits represent the best they can hope for. <sighs> wow, this is really, this is, this is, this is it. This is where they are. Resignation. We've entered the resignation phase for the Democrat. I mean, John Harwood is a progressive. He is a Democrat. He is sympathetic to the Democrats. He is biased to the Democrats. And here he is. Oh, there's, we're going to get killed and there's nothing we can do. Let's take these one at a time, shall we? There's not much Joe Biden can do to curb inflation. Actually, there is. You know what Joe Biden could do? He could boost drilling immediately. Why? Because energy is the number one component of inflation in America right now. You reduce energy costs, which you would do by immediately expanding the playing field for oil and gas in the country, you would lower energy prices. Energy prices going down would cause inflation to go down. It really would. So many of the food prices out there right now are because of the transport costs, uh, the grain costs. They're moving grain from, from feed to ethanol. All of these things are because we have curtailed gas and oil. You expand gas and oil, you lower inflation because you lower energy costs across the board. And that translates into food costs. It translates into transport costs. It translates into everything. There's not much he can do to stop migrants from reaching the U.S. southern border. That's not the problem. The problem is them coming across. Note the phraseology there. The problem is the southern border needs to be secured. If Biden secured the southern border, he would stop migrants, but he doesn't want to. There's not much John Harwood says he can do to reduce crime. Actually, did y'all hear about there was a mass shooting in South Carolina over the weekend, over Easter weekend. Someone shot a bunch of people, I think, at a mall, like 11 people shot nobody dead so far, thankfully. Uh, the judge sent him away with an ankle bracelet at home arrest, the criminal, the shooter, the suspect. Joe Biden could boost police around the country and get very tough on crime very quickly. They could go back to the broken window theory on crime that the, so much of the media has spun is not really good, not really working. I, I have Republicans and, and conservatives who come to me all the time. Well, you know, the social scientists have said the broken window theory really didn't do a lot. Really? Did you see New York City when Giuliani deployed it? Crime went away. It became very safe. And there's not much to make vaccine resistors get shots that would hasten the end of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we've gotten the country over uh, two-thirds vaccinated, and the pandemic is rebounding on people who were vaccinated. That's such a distraction. There's not much he can do to compel cooperation from defectors within his thin Democratic congressional majorities. Nope, there's not. He's right. He can't do that. Or compel Republicans. Uh, to work with him, there's not. But look at that. Inflation, he says there's nothing he can do, and he can. 
The southern border, he says there's nothing he can do, and he can. Crime, he says there's nothing Biden can do, and he can. The fact that you have a member of the media, not just anybody, this guy was on CNBC, he's now at CNN, he's been in the New York Times, and he said, oh, there's nothing he can do about any of these problems when a lot of these problems are there because of Joe Biden. The problem is that the Democrats institutionally cannot take on these problems. They can't take on these problems because they have been held hostage by the left. Elizabeth Warren has an op-ed, a guest essay, they call it, in the New York Times today. The headline, Democrats can avoid disaster in November. I only want to read you the first paragraph. Listen to this. Democrats are the party of working people. Ahead of the 2020 election, we advanced ideas and plans that we believed would, in ways big and small, make our democracy and our economy work better for all Americans. Across the country, voters agreed with us and gave us a majority in Washington so we could deliver all those promises. Let's 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 break this down. Democrats are the party of working people. Actually, they're not. And this is the problem that the Democrats have. They perceive themselves to be the party of working people. In reality, they're the party of Karen. Rich white women with bad dye jobs who are in everybody's faces complaining about stuff and using the phrase Latinx. Elizabeth Warren perceives herself to be on the side of workers. In fact, she's on the side of Karen. No offense if your name is Karen. You know what I mean. Then she says uh, we they try to do all these things to help big and small uh, make democracy and economy work and voters awarded us a majority in Washington. Actually, they reduced your House of Representatives majority to almost losing it, and you only got the Senate majority because Republicans in Georgia, 427,205 of them stayed home because they were convinced the election was going to be stolen. You didn't do anything. In fact, Democratic policies made it worse. This level of being that out of touch with how they're perceived and what actually happened is why the Democrats are going to have a very hard time rebuilding in uh, 2022 after what comes. And what's coming is brutal for them. Wait until you hear the president's pollster. I've got that audio when we come back. You know, the economy is so bad now. We haven't seen an economy like this in 40 years. And for the last number of years, I, I've said, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't think we're in the economic circumstance to recommend any sort of precious metal investment. And given that we're back to the Carter economy, now is the time to protect your retirement savings. I mean, we're seeing 40-year high inflation, interest rate hikes, increasing gas prices. If you got $50,000 or more in your IRA, your 401k, or any other investment savings, your money's probably at risk. You don't have many options, but you can protect your money with physical gold and silver. You can call Gold Co. at 855-904-5933. You'll get a free wealth protection kit to learn how to use gold and silver to protect and grow your money. And my friends at Gold Co. will tell you how many of their customers get $10,000 or more in free silver with their orders. You can too. Gold Co. has helped thousands of Americans protect their retirement against inflation and stock market crashes. Crashes They can help you too. You call them 855-904-5933. Or if you text ERIC to 33777, I will send you back Gold Coast phone number so you don't have to memorize it. Just text Eric to 33777. I'll text you your their phone number. Call them. You get the free wealth protection kilt, uh, kit, not kilt. And they tell you how you can get $10,000 or more in free silver. Gold Co., they're my partners on this. Text Eric to 33777. 
The phone number here is 877-973-7425. If you want to be on the program, we got to talk about Disney. When we come back, there was a big story over the weekend. They're running into more and more trouble in the culture war front. Don't know how to navigate it. Of course, you know what? It frustrates me that the media keeps saying conservatives are the culture warriors here when we're just kind of standing for the status quo and everybody around us is fighting, trying to, to push us off a cliff, push the whole society off a cliff. But before we get there, a public university in Ohio will pay $400,000 to a philosophy professor who refused to use a student's preferred pronouns. The settlement arrives four years after the school punished the professor for not using a student's preferred pronouns. The legal team for the professor argued the university violated the professor's First Amendment rights. During a political philosophy class, uh, Shawnee State University professor Nick Merriweather responded to a biological male student's question by saying, yes, sir. When the class ended, the student confronted Merriweather. The student declared to be transgender and to be referred to as a woman with feminine titles and pronouns. When Merriweather did not instantly agree, the student became belligerent and promised to get Merriweather fired. The student filed a complaint, which triggered an investigation. Merriweather said the pronouns would force him to speak and act contrary to his own Christian convictions and philosophical beliefs. Merriweather reportedly offered to address the student by the individual's first or last name, but the student insisted on the preferred pronouns. The university rejected Merriweather's compromise and claimed he created the hostile environment, and the university slapped the professor with a written warning on his personnel file. Merriweather filed a lawsuit claiming that the school violated his First Amendment and 14th Amendment rights. The lawsuit was dismissed but was revived by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in March of 2021. They ruled that the university punished a professor for his speech on a hotly contested issue, and it did so despite the constitutional protections afforded by the First Amendment. Good. Uh, There's now a settlement, uh, $400,000. Good.